Hello, Almost Presidents podcast listeners. This is your co-host, Ryan. So Kevin and I are hard at work on season two of the podcast. Episode one is set to drop on June 1st. So make sure to subscribe so that you'll be notified the moment it comes out. Our second season is going to take you back in time to 1876, when Almost President Samuel Tilden faced off against Rutherford B. Hayes in a presidential election that would set the nation aflame and put an official end to federal reconstruction. So whether you've been with us since our inaugural season on RFK, or you're thinking of taking a trip through history as told by the loser for the first time, I'd like to invite you to listen to a 10-minute teaser from Season 2, Samuel Tilden. Enjoy. And just catch his breath a bit after winning the nomination. In the space between Lincoln's November election as the next president and his arrival at his new home in the White House, seven southern states will have seceded from the Union. This was a disaster that many saw coming and feared greatly, and our almost president, Samuel Tilden, was no exception to this. Although he would stick by the president during the duration of the Civil War, Tilden viewed Lincoln's potential victory in the 1860 election as the deciding factor in whether or not the United States could be said to be united anymore. Tilden vehemently opposed the election of Lincoln, keeping the map of the 1860 election in mind again, Tilden, according to Bigelow, quote, by correspondence, did what he could to discourage the transfer of the federal government to the control of a geographical party, meaning, in other words, that the South was going to be extremely pissed when a guy only the North voted for, who in some southern states wasn't even on the ballot, was going to be in charge. Even though Tilden focused more on law than politics in the months leading up to the 1860 election, Tilden was open about the fact that, should Lincoln win, a civil war very well could ensue. John Bigelow, who was a Republican by this point, remembered how fired up Tilden would get about how disastrous it would be if Lincoln won. There's a particularly memorable incident involving Tilden that occurred in the days leading up to Lincoln's victory, when it was starting to become clear that he might win. Bigelow writes, quote, Only a few days before the election of Mr. Lincoln, and when his partisans were confident of success, Mr. Tilden came into the editorial rooms of the Evening Post looking very haggard and preoccupied. Hiram Barney, William H. Osborne, and John A. C. Gray, all Republicans and intimate friends who chanced to be there at the same time, began to chaff him about the political situation. He listened for a time without relaxing in the slightest degree the sternness of his expression or uttering a word. Presently, as if suddenly filled with the spirit of prophecy, and in a tone of intense emotion, he exclaimed, I would not have the responsibility of William Cullen Bryant and John Bigelow for all the wealth in the sub-treasury. If you have your way, civil war will divide this country, and you will see blood running like water in the streets of this city. Having uttered these words, he rose and left the office. Ten or fifteen minutes later, Andrew H. Green, who had a desk in Mr. Tilden's office, called and asked me if Mr. Tilden was not there. I said he had just left, and then lowering my voice to Mr. Green, I said, You had better look Tilden up at once and get him home. He is very much excited. Much as it would have grieved me, it would not have surprised me had I heard any time within ten days or ten hours that he was a raving lunatic. Unquote. Fortunately, Tilden emerged from his seemingly righteous fit, with his wits and intellect intact. He would surely need them in the tumultuous months and years to come. Another incident involving Tilden recounted by Bigelow gives us a clear view of his stance on southern states seceding from the Union. It was at a dinner he attended in 1860 along with some guests from the South. 
And of course, even when Tilden wasn't behind a rostrum or at an important meeting of the Democratic Party, politics were always in the forefront of his mind. He was overheard telling one of the guests at a dinner, a man from the South, that, quote, if the Southern states persisted in their attempt to secede, they must not expect the Northern Democrats to hold the government while they were whipping it. He went on to say that, quote, peaceful separation was an illusion, that the questions and controversy would be rendered infinitely more difficult by separation, and new ones still more difficult would be created. That if the antagonized parties could not agree upon peace within the Union, they certainly would not have peace without the Union. They never could agree upon terms of separation, nor could they agree upon the relations to subsist between them after the separation. And, however lamentable might be the consequences, force could be the only arbiter of their differences. Unquote. And as we know, Tilden was basically exactly right. On April 12, 1861, at 4.30 a.m., Fort Sumter, a federally occupied military installation in South Carolina, was attacked by Confederate forces led by General Beauregard. The federal troops inside, under the leadership of Major Robert Anderson, attempted to fight back, but they were outnumbered, outgunned, and undersupplied. The first engagement of the American Civil War would result in federal troops turning Fort Sumter over to the rebels the afternoon of the following day. Despite all the firepower, only one man was killed and one injured when a 100-gun salute conducted by the Union upon surrendering the fort went wrong. Federal Private Daniel Ho would be the first of many who would die before this conflict was over. Back in New York City, in the wake of the attack on Fort Sumter, Tilden, unlike many members of his party, especially, obviously, Southern Democrats, although finding fault with many of Lincoln's policies and decisions regarding how he conducted and financed the war, had decided that he would remain loyal to the Union. Unlike many, he viewed the war in the early days as what would come to be a long, drawn-out conflict that would require much more soldiers than Lincoln was calling for. He even met with the newly appointed Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, on multiple occasions to make his logistical position on the North's war-making capabilities known to Stanton himself. At these meetings, he broke things down for Stanton with a surprising degree of knowledge for a man whose health and expertise far removed him from possessing a deep knowledge of mid-19th century military grand strategy. At the first meeting, for example, he broke some important things down for Stanton. And as much as I want you to take in the whole quote, we're definitely going to elaborate on what he tells Stanton right out the gate. Tilden said, quote, You have no right to expect a great military genius to come to your assistance. The whole human race have been able to furnish such men only once in a century or two. You can only count on an average military talent. You have three times the available population and perhaps nine times the industrial resources of your antagonist. You have an immense advantage in the superior capacity of your railways to move men and supplies. What you have to do is make your advantages available, concentrate your forces, and organize ample reserves to be ready to precipitate them on critical points. In the probable absence of military genius, you must rely on overwhelming numbers wisely concentrated. In many ways, Tilden broke down what elements the North had that the South didn't, which would inevitably lead to Union victory over the Confederacy. The North had more men, more industrial might, more maneuverability when it came to supplying their men. All they needed was solid leadership, which Tilden seemed to think was sorely missing among West Point's best and brightest, or at least those that remained loyal to the Union. In this aspect, many historians would argue Samuel Tilden was sorely mistaken. 
At this point in our episode, if we were shooting a drama, we might say something along the lines of, enter into the scene, General Ulysses S. Grant. But that wasn't something that happened right away. There would be a lot of drama, a lot of death, a lot of flip-flopping of generals in the Eastern theater of the war before Grant, the guy who, with his tight-knit group of generals and advisors, would swoop in and bring the war to its gruesome conclusion. And out of this war, as we talked about in the first three episodes of this season of the podcast, would emerge the men, the survivors of the war on both sides, who would go on to attempt to bring the country back together after it was all over. But for many of these men, two in particular that are going to play important roles in our story, the war wasn't only something gruesome, horrifying, tragic, and unforgettable that they were fortunate enough to survive. It was what made them into who they would become. And if it wasn't for the war, we might not even know their names. As a matter of fact, we can definitely say, in the case of one of them, that without the Civil War, this man undoubtedly would not have gone on to become a president of the United States. In terms of their future political and presidential career, the Civil War just might have been the best thing that happened to both of them, and they would even both go on to say as much themselves. And I'm referring, of course, to two future presidents here, Ulysses S. Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes. So let's take the chance to get to know these two guys a bit, who they were before the war, what they achieved during the war, and how they fought it. Starting with Rutherford B. Hayes, who would go on to oppose almost President Samuel Tilden in the election of 1876, the focal point of our season. Hayes, just like Grant, was born in Ohio. He was born into a family plagued by tragedy. His father died before he was born, and in addition to that, of his four siblings, only he and his sister Fanny would survive to adulthood. The death of a father that he'd never met thrust Hayes into the position of being the man of the house at quite a young age, long before he was a man, or even a boy for that matter. But Hayes was a man of tremendous drive and ambition. His limitless drive was even the main cause of several nervous breakdowns he suffered throughout his life from just pushing himself too hard. Hayes, like Tilden, would study law, opening his own practice in Cincinnati once he'd finished with his studies. As a lawyer, Hayes put himself under the radar of the newly formed Republican Party by defending escaped slaves who were being prosecuted under the Fugitive Slave Act. This led to him being nominated to fill a vacant city solicitor position in Cincinnati. He won by one vote, which is where many say a string of good fortune began. Unfortunately, however, when it came to this particular post, Hayes was unable to enjoy this luck for long. His enthusiasm and willingness to campaign for fellow Republican Abraham Lincoln in the 1860 election led to his ouster when Democrats and Know-Nothing Party members banded together to remove Republican officeholders, afraid that they supported war with the South. And when it came to Hayes, at least, this was true. It was the attack on Fort Sumter that gave him, no military experience notwithstanding, reason to join the Burnout Rifles, a local militia unit of which he was made captain. Rutherford B. Hayes loved life in the military. Later in life, he'd refer to the Civil War as his, quote, golden years, quote, the best years of our lives, and would later go on to brag. All right, thank you for listening, and make sure again to hit that subscribe button on the way out so that you can listen to the Almost President's podcast, season two, Samuel Tilden, the moment it comes out, which is June 1st. Thanks again for listening.